0: Lives of the Unconscious A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy Episode 2 Transference, Countertransference The terms transference and countertransference are central concepts of psychoanalysis which describe an essential feature of our interpersonal relationships. It is not only in psychodynamic therapeutic methods where it has become common praxis. As a matter of fact, the concepts transference and counter-transference have found their way into behavioural therapy as well, albeit in a somewhat modified form. Nevertheless, We would like to devote this episode to the psychoanalytic approach. Psychoanalysts undergo a long and intensive education until they develop an adequate feeling for what is meant by transference and countertransference. What are they about then? For a long time, there was only one term. That was transference, and it was Sigmund Freud who initially conceptualised it. With it, he described a phenomenon that he repeatedly ran into in his daily clinical practice, and which initially caused him great difficulties. Freud noticed that his patients frequently cast him in a light that seemed to distort his character. The patients brought something into the therapeutic relationship, which had less to do with Freud himself, but rather had conspicuous similarities to what they had experienced as children in their relationships to close caregivers, as in with their mother, father, or also siblings, uncle and aunt, nanny, and so forth. It appeared as if an image of someone from the past had been placed over Freud's character, or, one could say, an image from the past was transferred onto someone in the present. All of us do this involuntarily, and automatically. What we have experienced in past relationships, we also expect in future relationships. Our experiences up till now are the template through which we view the world. As a general rule, this is not a problem, but rather quite useful. However, it is important that we see the person across from us and our relationship to them in such a way that we can say that it corresponds to reality. Our inner, generally unconscious expectations and perceptions refer to the reality of the here and now and can, when necessary, also be revised via that reality. For instance, if a person is different than expected. An example. A father is expecting the birth of his second son. Like every parent, this father has specific ideas, expectations and fantasies about what this child will be like one day. A course of events that doesn't just proceed consciously. Let us say now that unconsciously the father fears the child will be unreliable and disorderly. This fear is based ultimately on the father's prior experience with his small brother, an experience he suffered considerably from, as he had to share a room with his brother. If, against all expectations, the child is neither unreliable nor disorderly, then a father that has overcome this issue internally will be able to see and appreciate his child for what he is, Orderly and reliable. It will be more difficult, though, if the father cannot amend his internal images and expectations, despite a reality to the contrary. The father could, for example, take any small and random inattentiveness as confirmation that the child is in fact just as unreliable as he had unconsciously expected, while disregarding information to the contrary the consequences are very likely to be conflicts between the father and the child, who understandably doesn't feel seen. Or alternatively, it could lead to the formation of a false self, in which the child identifies with the father's incorrect image. But we will hear more about that in the episode on the false self. Generally, those who come to therapy are those whose inner expectations and perceptions of relationships have, in one way or another, become rigid and inflexible. That brings them into conflict with other people, time and again. The more the therapy progresses, the more these same rigid inner images will be transferred onto the therapist repeating in the therapeutic relationship something that the patient has experienced in previous relationships. Thereby, one can roughly differentiate between two forms of transference, a negative and a positive transference. In the case of our example, we would speak of the father's transference on the child as negative, because the feelings attached to it are tinted adversely. But there is also a positive transference in the form of expectations that are attached to enjoyable, pleasant feelings. One could deem positive transference as any transference with positive results. We will come back to that in a second. For the moment, we would like to go back to Freud and the first days of the discovery of the phenomena of transference for these began as positive already before freud it was well known that some patients were falling in love with their physicians the present day rule of abstinence leads back to this phenomenon for this love and this brings us to the concept of countertransference was gladly reciprocated in those days but it was first freud the dry realist that he was, who recognised that, as a rule, this love applied personally neither to him nor any of his colleagues. Instead, it appeared as if an old wish had been awakened in the patient that once had been denied, and which since then had remained unfulfilled. This wish, which had never been entirely overcome, had in the course of the treatment been reawakened and in the present relationship to the therapist was ultimately striving for fulfilment again. What is one to do when the patient discloses their infatuation more or less explicitly? Should this longing be fulfilled, giving the patient what he or she has never had? Or should the patient be sent away, so that he or she doesn't suffer from these unfulfilled wishes any longer. It may be surprising, but it is in fact the last option that some therapists choose nowadays. Even in the beginning of the 20th century, physicians often adopted one or the other possibility. The history of affairs between patients and physicians has clung to psychoanalysis to the present day and has been the subject of a vast number of books and films. Freud, however, formulated the rule of abstinence as part of the technical guidelines for treatment, to which every therapist today abides. The abstinence of the therapist is meant to prohibit the physician from misusing their relationship to the patient for the gratification of their own interests, wishes or needs even their wishes to be loved. So how should therapists deal with the patient's infatuation? Well, there remains only that option that on first glance may appear unsatisfactory. To not respond to the patient's wishes, and thus perhaps to those of the therapist as well. And yet neither to torment the patient unnecessarily either. Instead, the issue should be worked through a term used very frequently in psychoanalytic work. That means, to make the feelings the object of therapeutic dialogue, and to try to understand it together. Freud noticed, namely, that the patient's infatuation often covered up something completely different. As soon as this became more apparent in the therapy, the patient's resistance subsided, and the topic could thus be addressed the initial infatuation often vanished. Feelings of infatuation crop up nowadays as well, especially at the very beginning of therapy. It need not be an outright feeling of great love, but, at least for a lot of patients, there is a strong sense of being drawn to the therapist. And by the way, neither gender nor age makes any difference. Love indeed knows no bounds the analyst readily accepts a positive transference, up to a certain point. Positive transference eases the entrance into the therapeutic process, establishes trust, awakens hope for recovery, energises and motivates the patient. Just like in a new relationship, when we try to put our best foot forward, while, at the same time, the other does so too, which in turn tends to ease the strain of the symptoms, that is to say, the agony that symptoms cause, such as insomnia and the accompanying fatigue. This is important because we can then better identify and treat the real conflicts, that is, that which lay behind the symptoms and was concealing them. It is like a wound. Once the bleeding has finally ceased, we can examine it in greater detail. But infatuation is only one form of expression in a broad field of positive transference feelings. What about when a negative transference shows up? Sooner or later, a negative transference will inevitably come into focus during therapy. This is much easier to deal with if a trusted relationship was able to take hold. It is much more difficult, on the other hand, when a negative transference existed towards the therapist from the very beginning. For why should I tell the therapist my deepest secrets and darkest thoughts if he or she is obviously not someone who I can trust, who gives me lousy and useless advice, who lets me down when I need him the most, who judges me, punishes me, puts me out, or to whom I ultimately mean nothing? Just like positive transference, negative transference is very worthwhile for the working relationship. For unlike that which we know from everyday life, the therapist will not feel threatened so quickly by a negative transference. At any rate, therapists have learned how to manage it and to take the blows. Psychoanalysts are trained to recognise a transference, to examine it critically, Also, insofar as they themselves truly have something to do with it, such as where they may in fact have made a mistake or overlooked something, and would in turn have to work through it together with the patient. Say, for example, the father from earlier has meanwhile begun therapy, and, little by little, he begins to notice that he has chosen, of all people, perhaps he is cursed a young therapist who appears to be completely and utterly unreliable. This is evident in that the therapist sometimes listens and sometimes appears somewhere else entirely with his thoughts, probably still with his last patient. After all, the therapist cancelled the last appointment again, likely because he wanted to have a longer weekend, and so it is quite evident that this therapist cannot be relied upon. Perhaps the father, patient, thinks about this furiously, perhaps more or less only in passing, or, alternatively, perhaps he doesn't mull over this consciously, but rather resigns himself to his perceived fate among the unreliable people in his life, and doesn't realise why he called his son a trifle that very weekend. If patients can, of their own accord, make something of these, at times very humiliating, feelings, then this can bring about an extraordinary development in the therapy. But what about when the patient isn't the slightest bit conscious of these feelings and thoughts? Let us say, for the sake of simplicity, that the therapist in our example is in fact a very reliable, orderly person. For example, at the start of the therapy, he gives his patients a holiday schedule for the coming year, so that the patients would know from the outset when the therapist wouldn't be available. The patient doesn't realise at all that they are transferring an old image, the unreliable brother, onto the therapist. And here the counter-transference finally comes into play. A psychoanalyst learns to pick up on and understand the patient's transference. This is done successfully, broadly speaking, by way of the feelings that arise in the counter They are trained to pay special attention to the feelings the patient produces in him or her during the therapy. To some this may sound banal, and to others perhaps esoteric. And yet... Likely everyone knows this. Don't we all have that one friend who always seems to make us feel that it's never enough, and we could always give them even more? Despite so often lending them your ear. Despite so often giving them truly good advice. The guilt gnaws at you, pity has spoken, as you agree to meet them again. But if you aren't generally the type to feel guilty... Then it is likely that you have acted on the feelings produced through the counter transference. In other words, reacted to the feelings of guilt that this friend unleashed inside you, and then acted accordingly. Now, if we think back to our example on the, in actual fact, reliable therapist, then it is perhaps understandable that he would feel a strong irritation especially after finally building a trusting and good relationship with the patient. When, after one cancelled appointment, the patient suddenly becomes incommunicative and obdurate again. It would be equally understandable if the therapist suddenly had feelings of guilt, the feeling that he is in fact an unreliable person, for after all, he was not available for that last meeting, although the patient had been doing so badly the session prior to it. We are now in the thick of what we call countertransference. Put differently and shortly, countertransference is the therapist's inner resonance of the patient's transference. It is thus extremely important that the therapist becomes conscious of this countertransference and works through it with the patient in one way or another. Work through it, not act it out. For all too easily it can so happen that therapists do exactly that. They act on their counter-transference. For example, in that the therapist, bored and annoyed, turns away from the patient or, solely out of feelings of guilt, offers the patient a second appointment to make up for the cancelled one although he or she doesn't actually have the capacity. Or think again of the physicians from back in the day, who fell in love with their patients and started relationships with them. In order to truly ensure change in the therapy, the patient's conflict-laden transference shouldn't be validated. For what is the therapist conveying to the patient if he offers him another session? He is acknowledging that the patient was actually right about his conscious or unconscious accusations of untrustworthiness. For why else would he be offered recompensation? In that way, the patient's vicious circle is repeating itself again, and this opportunity for personal development, becoming conscious of and working through the issues in his life, has been missed out on. Physicists, such as surgeons, have instruments, scalpels, bandages, stethoscopes, microscopes, etc. that aid them in their work, or in some cases, make it even possible in the first place. Therapists, on the other hand, utilise themselves and their own feelings and perceptions as their instrument. One can now appreciate why becoming a psychoanalyst requires not only years of intense education, but also an equally long and intensive training analysis, that is, its own therapy. Therapists must learn, as far as possible, not to mix up their own feelings and conflicts with the conflicts and feelings of the patient. Put differently, therapists must be able to discern what parts of their evolving relationship belong to the patient and, more importantly, what parts pertain to their own emotional life, originating in their own conflicts and difficulties. A strict, distinct separation is naturally unrealistic and it is not uncommon for the patient's transferences to cling to the therapist's own sore spots, thereby mirroring a piece of reality. Yet the question is how much this reality has been distorted by the patient. The therapist's task is thus not to become the perfectly reliable, orderly, all-knowing supertherapist, and instead to help patients to realistically and appropriately be aware of themselves, and their surrounding world, and to be able to deal with this reality. This podcast was written and produced by Cecilia Lutz and Jakob Müller. It has been translated by Soliman Lawrence and is read by Rebecca Dyson-Smith.